Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Final Girl on 6th Avenue podcast. My name is Carolyn Smith-Hilmer. I'm your host and 6th Avenue's very own Final Girl. And today I'm very excited because this will actually be my first ever listener request episode. So um, if you've listened to last week's episode, you know that one of my, I mentioned that one of my followers on Instagram named Florian from Germany reached out to me, told me that they appreciate my show and um, I wanted to see if they had any special requests. Um, Florian mentioned that they wanted to hear or me speak a little bit about uh the movie Bo is afraid the new ari aster film and i've only seen it once so i don't really feel comfortable giving a full episode on it only being that i've seen it one time when it comes out to on demand i will absolutely be watching it again and would be more than happy to talk about it so i told florian i'm not going to be able to do that with confidence but what i can do is give you a different Ari Aster movie and we'll go with Hereditary. So um, if you know me personally, you know that Hereditary is one of those movies that I just can't seem to get enough of. And I wish I knew why exactly. Um, I love the way that it's filmed. I like using grief as a storytelling device. I think it's very underrated, but also something that everyone can uh, empathize with. It's something that everyone understands or has dealt with or will will deal with inevitably because loss is a part of life. I'm a bit of a super fan. I own the printed and bound copy from A24 of the screenplay of the film. I've probably seen it upwards of 20 times. This is the only movie that I've ever watched that was so effective in the way that it was written that I actually had to turn it off, leave the room that I was watching it in, and come back and finish it later. And when I start talking, I'll let you know when that point is, um... I don't want to give anything away at the very beginning. But yeah, so this movie has had a great impact on me and everyone that I've made watch it with me is mad at me for it afterwards. And so that to me is the signifier that this is a great film. So let's not waste any more time. Let's jump in. This one's kind of heavy. So I would say if you are not in the right mindset to you know, hear about a a series of of grief losses, hear about anything occult related, I would maybe skip this one for now and come back to it on a different day. So looking straight to our Bible, we all know, IMDb. Hereditary is a 2018 release rated R two hour, seven minute runtime. It's a little long, but I promise it doesn't feel long when you're watching. Written and directed by Ari Aster, starring Tony Collette, Millie Shapiro, Gabriel Byrne, and Alex Wolfe, among others. But who doesn't love Tony Collette, okay? Like, she's just so phenomenal. 
A grieving family is haunted by tragic and disturbing occurrences. So that sounds simple enough, I hope, to everyone. And yeah, let's kick it off. I swear to God, there's never been a movie that is so, so upsetting in terms of, of, of a family and their dynamic. So our opening screen is uh, Lee. That's her name, Lee's obituary. And Lee is the grandmother of this family. Lee is the, the quote unquote matriarch of this family. And so we have a nice little, little snip of her obituary that we're able to read. Lovely. And um, as soon as that cuts out, we are immediately directed to a clear view of a treehouse out of Peter, who is the son of the family, right out of his bedroom window. And inevitably, we are turned and directed to look at some doll slash like miniature uh, setting creation. So like imagine a dollhouse, but like without dolls, it's basically like a diorama on a really tiny scale, but they're in a house, like a dollhouse. That is what Annie, Tony Collette's character, does for work. Steve, our dad, wakes up Charlie and Peter. Those are our two kids. Charlie was sleeping in the attic, and Steve is, like, a little bit pissed about this. He's like, can you please, like, not? It's really annoying. I shouldn't be looking all over for you. Thank you. Sleep in your bed like a normal kid. And they go to Lee's funeral. At the funeral, Charlie, she's like drawing. She's always seen doing something. So she's either drawing or making something. She makes this like clicking sound with her mouth. like, And she just seems to do it kind of at random. Like nobody really pays much attention to it. And... When she goes up to say goodbye to Grandma Lee, uh, they're having an open casket funeral, she notices a necklace on her grandma's neck, and Tony Collette is wearing the exact same necklace, actually, while she's giving the eulogy, and Tony Collette doesn't have a ton of nice things to say about um, her mom, but she gets through it, okay? Sometimes even when relationships are strained, you still have... Plenty of nice things to say about each other. She found a way to do that. Um, and all these random people are coming up to pay respects to Grandma Lee. Like, people that these that, that the family doesn't really know. And later, Charlie, still at the funeral, is eating a chocolate bar. And I don't know if Charlie, like, doesn't eat chocolate that much, but she certainly acts like she doesn't eat chocolate that much just by the way that she's eating it. But Annie and Steven are making a big deal about her eating this chocolate bar just to make sure that it doesn't have any nuts in it because um, they talk about how they don't have an EpiPen with them. Which, guys, just so everybody's aware, if you have a nut allergy, for the love of God, just carry an EpiPen with you. I understand not everybody has insurance. I understand it might be out of an out-of-pocket cost. It might be really, really expensive particularly if you're in the United States. If you can afford to have an EpiPen, please carry one. These can save people's lives. I've seen it firsthand. It's really nothing to fuck around with. So they're talking about how they don't have an EpiPen for their kid. 
which I find to be kind of irresponsible, but that's, I'm not a parent, so that's not for me to say. Back at home, Annie, she's like, Steve, I'm not really that sad. Like, I feel like I should be more sad that my mom just died. And she's not. Um, So she goes to work. She's making these mini diorama. I'm just going to call them dollhouses because that's what they look like to me. And I don't think that's like the proper way to refer to them. But they're dollhouses. We're just going to decide collectively right now. That's what they're called. So she's making this dollhouse version of the scene of her mom in the hospital, which is presumably where she died. And no one else in the house is really sad at all, except for Charlie, who later that day asks her mom, Annie, who's going to take care of me? Now that grandma's gone, who's going to take care of me? And Annie's like, um, well, I'm your mom. Like, I'm going to take care of you. What kind of question is that? That's ridiculous. And she's like, yeah, but what about when you die? And she's like, well, then dad will take care of you or Peter will take care of you. Like somebody is going to take care of you. We're never just going to like leave you high and dry. Charlie's very upset. And she explains to her mom. She's like, mom, grandma wanted me to be a boy. And Annie's like, well, I don't know. I don't know if she wanted you to be a boy. But I can tell you that you never really liked girly things. You always did kind of do more tomboyish activities and dressed more uh, masculine. Like you didn't really fit the stereotypical framework for like a little girl um, with bows and rainbows and butterflies. And then it dawns on Annie that she's never seen her daughter Charlie cry, even when she was a baby. And she's just kind of interested at this point. And she's like, Charlie, um, did you feel like crying today? And Charlie just kind of doesn't really give that a response. Um, I don't know. Some people don't cry. It's just a thing. In a box of Grandma Lee's stuff, Annie finds a book about spiritualism. And it has a note from Lee, um written to Annie, basically with an apology about how the rewards for all the things that she's done are going to be worth it. And, you know, she's sorry, but like the rewards are going to be so incredibly amazing that it doesn't even matter what I did when I was alive. Like, you're going to thank me. Who the fuck says that? When she goes to turn off the light, she sees an apparition of her mom, which obviously scares the shit out of her. So she tells Steve, yeah, crazy. I just saw my mom in uh, the room and, you know, it kind of freaked me out. And he's like, well, she's dead. So probably didn't happen. What I'm going to assume is the next day, uh, Charlie notices a bird fly into a window at school. And I don't know if you guys know this, but birds do this a lot. And so this is a fun fact for you all out there. If you're a, a bird watcher or like activities with uh, avi- aviaries, it's not me. It's not for me. But in Houston, Texas, um, Texas A&M professors who need bird specimens walk around downtown Houston in the early hours of the morning, right when the sun is coming up, because 
there are so many glass buildings in Houston uh, that the birds fly into the buildings and then fall on the ground. So it's a really actually ethical way of collecting specimens for research without having to go out and like kill a bird just to have something to research on. So that's what this reminded me of. But anyway, the bird flies into the window, it dies. And, you know, Charlie is looking at some scissors. And you already know, you're like, what the hell is she going to do with scissors and a dead bird? I'll tell you exactly what she's going to do. She's going to cut the head off the bird. She goes outside. She goes and gets the dead bird. She cuts the head off. Whatever. Not my time. Not my place. Peter's also at school and he also sucks at paying attention at school. Um, And he's texting his friends about getting high during class and not paying attention. But Peter's older. So he's not really focused with dead birds. And while Charlie is like cutting the head off of this bird we see that she's being watched by a woman at her school that she doesn't know so later annie goes into her mother's room because she was living with the family and finds what is like a giant triangle and i can't tell if it's etched into the floor like burned into the floor but they have wood flooring and it is in the floor it's this giant triangle she kind of is like well it's weird I don't know if it means much. And Steve gets a call from the cemetery that Grandma Lee's body is missing. And when Annie questions him about what the phone call is about, he says it was just about money. You know, they didn't, you know, get the payment or whatever. So Annie's like, okay, that's fine. Well, I'm going to go see a movie, which for Annie is code for I'm going to go to group therapy. Um... And I can see why she says that because it's kind of like a movie, really. Um, and so she goes to group therapy where it's like for um, new new grief people, like people suffering with grief at the time. And so she's like, I'm not really open to this and I don't really want to be here. But last time I had a death in my family, I came and it actually kind of helps. So like, I'm going to try it again. So here's the situation. And she goes through all of this horrible detail about how her family has a history of, like, having really horrible and strange deaths. Like, her dad, like, hung himself and starved himself and her brother died and blamed his their mom for, like, putting voices in his head to do it. And, you know, then her mom just died and it's like, she can't even, she can't catch a break. It's just a really unfortunate family history. And she explains that she wouldn't allow her mom to have any sort of access to her son. Because she was, like, so obsessed with having access to her grandson. But would give Grandma Lee access to Charlie when she was born. Because she wasn't, like, as weird or obsessed with her. Back at home, son Peter is smoking some weed. And we see that there's someone breathing into the cold air from the treehouse. So we get like a view of the treehouse from the treehouse looking at Peter's bedroom window and there's cold, there's air because um, it's it's cold outside so you can see like the smoke from the air. And so that's a little weird because why is somebody in the treehouse? This is why 
This is one of the reasons why I will never own a property with a treehouse or even entertain the idea of having a treehouse because the fact that somebody could get in it that I don't know is there is just too much for me. While Annie is preparing a meal, I'm going to guess dinner, she's cutting up tomatoes, so it's kind of ambiguous. But if we look at the, the refrigerator, there is a photo of Grandma Lee feeding Charlie with a bottle. And if you look at the bottle, okay, right, because it should be like formula or milk. If you look at the bottle, there are some black, like, black residue at the bottom of the bottle that you can see. And it's very, very quick. So if you're not paying attention, you will absolutely miss it. And after that, Peter kind of is like, hey, mom, I really want to go to a party. Um, it's with a friend from school and, you know, I really want to go. And, and he's like, well, you can go. Um, I just wanted to know if you were going to be drinking. And he's like, well, mom, I mean, I'm not even old enough to get alcohol. Like, where would I get it? And she was like, well, I know you're going to, I know you can get it. I just want to know if you're going to do it. Because if you are, like, I don't want you to drive. And um, he's like, well, no, I told you I'm not, I'm, I just told you I'm not going to do it. And she's like, cool. Well, you should, um, you should invite Charlie. You should take her with you. And he's like, I don't really think that Charlie would want to go to a party. But if you say so. And Annie basically forces her to go. Um, she she finds Charlie walking around outside toward an apparition of Grandma Lee sitting in a circle of fire, like literally a ring of fire. And Annie finds her and is like, you don't even have shoes on. You don't have a jacket on. It's freezing outside. And Charlie's like, Mom, I want Grandma. And she's like, well, that's too fucking bad. What does that have to do with anything right now? Like, you're going to walk around without shoes outside because you miss Grandma? Like, no, that's not happening. You're going to a party. So when they get to the party, Peter leaves Charlie downstairs. He goes to this party to be with his crush. And he's like, Charlie, why don't you make yourself comfortable on the couch? Or maybe you can lay down somewhere. There's plenty of bedrooms if you want. You can draw. You can watch TV. Um, they're cutting a cake over there. Why don't you go grab a piece of cake? Like, what, you know, don't don't just stand here and be weird, right? We all know somebody who does that. So um, Peter leaves her downstairs and he's going to go smoke weed with his crush upstairs. And so we see Charlie kind of walking around and she's like, okay, fine. Yeah, I'll get a piece of cake. She gets a piece of cake and she starts taking a bite. And um, you can tell like either something doesn't taste right or something doesn't feel right about what she's consuming. So we see her drinking a bunch of water after this. Like she's taking red solo cups to the sink and she's knocking back water fast as she can and she comes upstairs to find peter and she's like peter my throat i think it's getting bigger and peter's like oh fuck you ate something with nuts in it so peter carries her to the car you know he's driving as fast as she can i'm sorry as fast as he can she's trying as hard as she can to breathe but they don't have an EpiPen. remember so she's like fighting for air. He's like, I'm sorry, Charlie. We're really close to the hospital. Like, please, please, please hang on. It's, it's going to be okay. 
She rolls down the window to get some air. And as soon as she does, she puts her head out the window and Peter sees a deer in the middle of the road. In order to avoid hitting this deer, he swerves. When he swerves, Charlie's head hits a telephone pole and Charlie is decapitated. And if you're wondering where I turned the movie off and walked away, this would be where. And I think the best part about this whole thing, Peter drives home with his sister's headless body in the fucking car and leaves it in the fucking car for Annie to find the next day. Peter stays awake all night when he gets home in bed. And he, all we see is his face and the light from the window on his face. And as the day goes from dark to light and the sun starts to come up, we get the absolute lifetime of a performance from Tony Collette. I mean, it is... I can't imagine what that would feel like as a mom to find my daughter's headless body um, in the back of my car. I'm going to go ahead and assume that if I didn't have another kid, I'd probably kill myself. Because I don't know that there would be a point in living after that. And I mean... This scene is gut-wrenching. This scene is sad. This scene is everything and more. It is the personification of what horrific, profound grief sounds like. There are guttural screams. All the while we're getting this performance from Annie. And the camera is focused on Charlie's head being eaten by ants on the side of the road. So they have a funeral. And after that, Annie Annie wants to sleep in the treehouse. It's cold outside. I believe they live in the Pacific Northwest. It's cold out and there's heaters in the treehouse. That's the only place she can get any rest. So that's where she sleeps. And at school, shortly after, Peter, during a lunch break with his friends, they're all hanging out smoking weed under the football bleachers. He has a panic attack and, like, a hard time breathing, like Charlie felt. Like, he feels like his throat is also getting bigger. Annie tries to go back to therapy, that group therapy, but she just, like, this time she can't even bring herself to get out of the car. Okay, like, she really, the first time with her mom, she really gave it her all. This time she's like, yeah, I don't know. I can't even go in there anymore. Because this is so beyond any other type of grief in the world. And when she's in her car staring at the building, she is approached by a woman named Joan. And Joan says, well, I would encourage you to come in. You know, I can't say it fixes everything, but it definitely helps. Um, My son and grandson died in a drowning incident like four months ago 
And, you know, this, this really has been a, a super big help for me. And Annie's like, that's really horrible. I'm so sorry to hear that. I really forgot something at home and I'm going to go. I don't want to be here. And Joan is like, you know what? That's fine. Maybe you really did forget something at home or maybe you really just don't want to do this today. But either way, I'm going to write my phone number down on a piece of paper and give it to you. And if you need anyone, give me a call. So Annie goes home and she lays awake all night. As soon as the sun starts to come up, she goes to sleep in the treehouse again. And Steve is like, okay, Annie, you can't keep sleeping in the treehouse. It's cold. You're going to get sick. And she's like, okay, fine. Except I can sleep there because I'm an adult. Number one. Number two, there's heaters in there. And number three, I laid awake all fucking night. I just want to get some sleep. Is that okay with you? Like, come on. So she finishes the rest of her night out in the treehouse. And when we get the next scene, pay attention to the mail. It's the front door. There's a mail slot. The mail is being held in the slot. Nobody, the postman hasn't dropped it down into the slot yet for it to fall on the floor. While they're holding the mail there, the thing they put on the very, very top is a flyer for a seance. Okay. So presumably they get the mail. I don't know if they see it or not. Annie eventually is like, you know what? I am going to call Joan actually because it's not getting any better and I'm not feeling great. And so she goes over to Joan's place for some tea. And when she gets there, she's like, wow, Joan, this is crazy. So the welcome mat that you have is, is so similar to the ones that my mom, Lee, used to embroider. And you're like, oh, okay, that's weird. I mean, welcome mats are kind of common. I mean, it could have come from anywhere. Maybe Lee used to sell welcome mats. We don't know what Lee did, right, before she died. So they talk over tea. Annie is on what I'm going to assume is like an antidepressant. I mean, she's on, I probably would be. Um, She's taking a medicine of some kind. And when she gets done telling Joan everything she wants to tell her, she takes her medicine with the tea and she finds like something black in her tea. And remember when I said that when there was a photo of Lee feeding Charlie with the bottle and there was black stuff in the bottle, there's black stuff in the tea here. Joan is, like, really curious about the dynamic between Annie and Peter. So she's like, what's the relationship like with your son? So this is probably not one of those stories you tell to a stranger over tea. She tells Joan about how once... The relationship with Peter has always been strained because one time she used to have a sleepwalking problem. And one night when she was sleepwalking, she woke up to find Peter and herself both covered in paint thinner. And she had a box of matches in her hand. So she was going to kill both of them. And Peter never forgave her for that and he never trusted her again. 
And Joan is pretty much like, well, that really sucks. So back at home, Annie is painting and working on some more dollhouse situations. And Steve comes in and he's like, hey, Annie, I I made dinner. I was hoping we could all have dinner together. And also, what the fuck are you doing? Annie is making a, a replica of the accident where Charlie's head got cut off. Okay. And Steve goes, well, what do you think that Peter is going to do or say when he sees this? And she's like, I mean, it's a uh, third party view of the accident. I don't know what I'm going to say. Like, I don't really care what he's going to say or do. Uh, it's just pretty callous and numb at this point and I honestly I can't blame her so they sit down at dinner and dinner is an absolute disaster okay poor Steve had the best of intentions putting together this dinner it looks great I would love to have sat at the dinner table it looks way better than the meal that they eat in Eraserhead with the chickens that throb and Annie just screams at Peter. I mean, it just lets it all out. She's like, nobody takes accountability for anything that they've done. You, I know you miss your sister. I know you feel bad about what you did. But the fact of the matter is, if she wasn't with you that day, she wouldn't have died. And like, you know, it's kind of your fault. It's not your fault, but it's kind of your fault. And Peter's like, okay, mom. Well, I know that this is really bad, but... You forced her to go to the party with me, so whose fault is it really? So dinner just really doesn't go well. So the whole thing is bad, and Annie is super lost in in the navigation of life. She's not doing well, and she goes to the craft store to pick up more paint. She has a deadline. She's trying to meet with this gallery for her, her dollhouses, and she wants to, you know, finish them. And after she checks out and is walking to her car at the craft store, she sees Joan. Isn't it so nice that whenever Annie is alone, Joan just so happens to be there? So Joan convinces her to come to a seance uh, and is like, oh my god, hey, I know that you're probably not super open to this, but like, what about a seance? Because I talked to my grandson today and, you know, it was super great. It was really him. It was like he was actually with me again. And what do you have to lose? So I guess the the flyer in the mail didn't work for the seance. So this is a targeted uh, way of getting Annie into a seance. And Annie's like, I don't know. That seems really weird. And Joan is like, no, it's fine. What are you doing right now? Right this very second. Like, let's go right now. So they go back to Joan's and they, they, do, they do a seance. And during it, Joan gets her grandson to write... I love you, Grandma, on a chalkboard. And it makes Annie really emotional and, like, really hysterical. And she's just like, this is just too much. Like, I got to get out of here. On her way out, Joan gives Annie some instructions and a candle on how to do it at home. So Annie's driving home. She hears a click, like the one that Charlie used to make with her mouth, come from the back of the car. Scares the shit out of her. And later that night... Annie wakes up in the middle of the night to see bugs and ants crawling everywhere. And so she goes into Peter's room and she sees these ants crawling all over his face. And she's horrified, right? And as soon as 
we see her 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 face like just the expression on her face peter sits up in bed like totally fine no more ants and peter's like hey mom what's going on and annie is kind of confused so she's like nothing um coming to check on you you know it's not a big deal Peter's like, why are you so scared of me? I don't understand. I'm your son. And Annie goes into what is likely the most hurtful thing you could ever say to your child. And I, this, this is so raw. Annie says, I never wanted to have you. I never wanted to be your mom. Peter's like, excuse me? What the- it's the middle of the night, are you fucking kidding me? Annie's like, I never wanted to be your mom. Um... And Peter's like, well then, why didn't you, like, get an abortion? And she's like, I tried. I- I tried to have a miscarriage, I tried to get rid of you. I pushed myself down the stairs. It wasn't working. Nothing worked. And so I ended up having you. And he's like, oh my God, you tried to kill me? And she's like, no, I wasn't. I didn't try to kill you. I was trying to save you. And while this is playing, it's it's flashing. The camera is going from Tony's face, or excuse me, Annie's face to Peter's face. Annie's face, Peter's face. And they're just going back and forth. And eventually... The way that it's cut is is that they both end up covered in paint thinner and Annie is holding the matches and she lights one and they're crying together and then boom, she wakes up. It was all a dream. Thank God, right? Because if she ever said that shit out loud after what she said to him at the dinner table, I mean, he would for Peter would be on suicide watch for sure. So Annie is like, you know what? That's a sign. Big sign for me. I'm going to go uh, do the seance situation because I've had it. So she does it. She goes all excited. She wakes up Steve and Peter to do it with her. She wants to show them that it works. And Steve is pissed. He doesn't want any part of it. He's telling her that he wants her to stop, to knock it off. He especially doesn't want her to get Peter involved. He's like 16. Like, it's just not fair. But Peter agrees to do it. He agrees to do it for a little while, and then he gets really, really upset whenever they ask Charlie's spirit to move a glass across, uh, to move it a little bit, actually. But she just launches this glass across the dining room table, so Peter gets freaked out. And then the spirit of Charlie, presumably Charlie, inhabits Annie's body and Annie starts speaking with Charlie's voice and it's really freaking Peter out. He's crying. Steve goes and gets a glass of water and throws it on Tony Collette and and just he brings her out of it. Um I mean, I don't know what else he was supposed to do. So at school the next day, you know, Peter is really a strong teenager because I don't know that I would be this strong at that time. But the next day at school, Peter is in class and he sees an orb of light on the floor. And um, 
he looks at a bookcase that's right next to him that has a glass door and his reflection in the bookcase is smiling back at him but he's not actually smiling so that's super odd and as soon as he snaps out of it he does so when he hears a clicking sound like the one charlie used to make and it scares the shit out of him and he's like you know what i gotta go to the bathroom sorry bye gotta get out of class sorry can't stay so he calls uh, Steve. Dad, can you pick me up from school? I'm too afraid to be at school. I think there's like a vengeful spirit that's haunting me. I can't be here. You know the drill. And Steve calls Annie to let her know that Peter is feeling this way. And Annie is like, why would he think that? Why would he think it's vengeful? Why would he be so scared? Like, I don't understand. And Steve hangs up on her, and you know what? That was that was the wrong thing for Steve to do because then Annie, who had been working on her uh, dollhouses to meet her deadline with her art gallery, is so pissed that she actually just breaks everything in the room. So now, I don't know what Steve did for work, but what Annie did for work now is like backed up for like eight months because she's not going to be able to make any money, so that's that. So, uh, yeah, Annie later, I mean, she's just a shell of a human and she's walking around Charlie's room. She's looking around and while she's in there, Peter sees the, an apparition of Charlie in his room and he, you know, lays down on his bed and a pair of hands reaches through the headboard the rungs in the headboard and is trying to pull him out of the window and he freaks out Annie runs in she's like oh my god you were screaming and he's like I was you were trying to kill me what do you mean she's like why would I try to kill you I heard you screaming and I came in here I wasn't even in here you freak show what happened he was like I saw Charlie in the corner and then you were trying to kill me and she's like I seriously wasn't trying to kill you I wasn't even in here but okay So Annie finds, she had found, when she was in Charlie's room, she found this, like, sketchbook on Charlie's bed. And this sketchbook has photo drawings of uh, Peter dead. So that's always nice. And so she's like, um, you know what, I don't really want to keep this. I actually want to burn this. So she throws the book into the fire pit that has a running fire. And as soon as she does it, her arm catches on fire. So if she burns the book, she also burns with it. So she's like, okay, not cool. Takes the book out. And she goes back to Joan's house. Because she's like, okay, well, now things are really bad. Um, So I did this seance and now things are bad. So I would like some help. And Joan is gone. She's gone. Annie's banging on the door. Joan's gone. Her apartment has been set up as an altar with some triangle on the dining room table with a photo of Peter in the center. So that's really nice. There's candles everywhere to bring energy to it. That's all fine and great. Why is she making an altar for Peter? So Annie never sees that, right? She never comes inside. But we, the audience, see it. And... Peter is eating lunch outside at school and Joan is across the street casting a spell, full necromancy, casting a spell in broad daylight to cast 
Peter's spirit out of his body. And back at home, Annie, desperately searching for an answer, because now she's like, well, now I got everybody freaked out. And like, maybe this wasn't worth it. She finds that spiritualism book from her mom. And there's a bookmark page that has some highlighting on it and reads about King Payman. Um, and she also finds in a photo book in the same box, photos of Grandma Lee and Joan together and photos of this cult that they were all a part of worshiping a photo of Annie and Steve and Peter and Charlie together. So that's really freaky and fucked up. So in the attic, Annie pulls down, they have the attic in um, the, like, if you're looking at the ceiling and you pull the stairs down and you walk up the stairs, um, the stairs are like collapsible into the ceiling. So she pulls down the stairs to the attic and like all these flies come out and she's like, God, that's so weird. Maybe I need to call somebody. Um, But she goes upstairs and finds the headless corpse of her mother. So that's cool. And a a painted sigil of payments on the wall. So she freaks out and Peter's at school, right? Because so he just got his own spirit cast out of his body. So that's nice. Thank you, Joan. How would he ever have done it without you? And so something takes over Peter's body. And he starts banging his face into the the desk. And it freaks him out. Steve brings him home. Annie is very, like, just hysterically upset. She's like, oh my god, I can't believe this happened. And I'm so sorry that this happened to Peter. But you have to come up into the attic to see what I saw. Because it's really fucked up up there. So Steve goes up there and he's like, I don't know what you're trying to do. But that does look a lot like your mom. And he's like, yo, I'm not doing anything. That is my mom. And so um, she's like, hey, you need to come downstairs with me actually too. Because now that you've seen that, what I need you to do is take this sketchbook full of of illustrations of our son um, as a dead person. And throw it into the fireplace. Because when I throw it into the fireplace, my arm catches on fire. So like I'll burn with it. But if you do it then, um, you know, if I catch on fire, like, it's okay because I just can't inflict it on myself. I just want you to do it for me. And Steve is, like, thinking about it. Eventually, he's like, "Mm, nah, I'm not doing that. I'm not putting up with this anymore. I'm not entertaining this anymore. This is done. And so she takes the, the sketchbook out of his hands and throws it into the fire and Instead of Annie catching on fire, Steve catches on fire and she just lets him burn. She just lets him die. So later, middle of the night, Peter wakes up and we, the audience, see Annie who has now transcended from like a regular human to some higher being And is now able to float and, like, walk on the ceiling. So Annie is hanging out in the corner of of, uh, Peter's bedroom ceiling, watching him. And Peter wakes up and he can't find 
anyone. Like, he's freaked out, and he can't find anybody, and he's calling for mom. He's calling for dad. Nobody's answering. He gets up. He starts walking around, and he goes to the kitchen, where on the kitchen table, he sees the burnt corpse of his dad, and he's freaked out. Annie is in the corner of the ceiling in the kitchen watching it all happen, and then in what I'm assuming is a pantry room, there's a naked dude hanging out who like is smiling at Peter and Peter is like oh no fuck that he runs up the stairs as soon as he starts running to go up the stairs Annie comes down from the ceiling and starts chasing him on foot he gets up into the attic he pulls up the stairs so Annie can't follow him and she starts banging her head in rapid succession on the latch to the attic stairs really scary he's like mom you're scaring me please 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 stop like i don't want to do this anymore and when she finally stops peter looks over in the attic to see the spot where grandma lee was laying down has now been made into um, a candle altar so you know sounds like a fire hazard to me and there's still a lot of flies so uh now, Annie has somehow found a way to get into the attic. So, now she's in the ceiling of the attic in the apex of the roof. And she is taking a wire and she's using the wire to go back and forth horizontally against her throat in an effort to cut off her own head. And Peter looks behind him to find three more naked people smiling at the sacrifice that Annie is making. And, um, you know, Peter is so scared by, by the entire thing. Cause he's like, I can't believe my mom is doing this. Like, where are all these naked people coming from? I don't like this. So he jumps out of the window and lands in some bushes. And whenever he gets up, he sees three more naked people you know, sparingly. They're just hanging out outside. But, and I don't know why they all have to be naked. I think that's just, like, part of a a vulnerability thing. He sees his mom's headless corpse float into the treehouse, and he's like, you know what? I'm going in there. I'm done with this shit. I've had enough. I gotta go see what's going on in here. He goes up into the treehouse, and he is crowned as King Payman by Joan and the other members of the cult. And that is Hereditary. So it's a wild ride. Um, There are a lot of elements at play here. There are certainly a lot of things that On a first watch, a second watch, maybe even a seventh watch, you don't catch all of it. I think it it took me a long time to really, like, when I... Because the first time I watched this movie, it's so... You're so engulfed in what is happening. Like, it's so just in your face about everything uh, that you're not, you're not really paying attention to the other things around. So, like, for example, the first few times, first two, three times I watched this movie, I'm like, I know, I personally know who Payman is. 
not because I've had an encounter with him, but because I like to study religion and, and he is noted as being one of the uh, kings of hell. So I was familiar, but that doesn't mean that I was able to put the timeline together necessarily for everything. So I think it's best to start with a little bit about who King Payman is as a um, mythological figure. Payman is a fallen angel. He fell with Lucifer um, after the rebellion uh, against heaven. And he is the ninth out of the 72 spirits of Solomon. And the reason that he fell from heaven with Lucifer is because he was so conceited with regard to his level of knowledge that God was like, yeah, not for me. You gotta go. So, uh, he, he was also one of the most obedient to Lucifer. And I think at one point maybe declared that he was the most obedient and was given 200 legions of hell to rule over as a thank you for his loyalty. Um, as far as characteristics go, he's, He's uh, noted as being uh, very loud, like his voice is very loud. And things with a lot of noise. He's also named the god of mischief. So lots of noise, lots of things that draw attention. Things that, um, anything that could be seen as like a, a trick or like a laugh, whether or not they're actually funny. Like, for example, it's not fucking funny to leave your sister's headless corpse in the back of a car but like payment might think that's funny um and when payment is present or when you see his depiction he is followed by instruments playing music like trumpets um and he is said to pretty much be the expert of all subjects like he knows all the secrets of the world. He can tell you the secrets of the world, the secrets of the mind, anything that you need to know. He will answer any question that can be asked of him and will will ask for the same in return from you. When you see a photo of him, he is wearing a crown and uh, rides on the top of a camel, beautifully ordained, it's not always that he's seen this way, but in some illustrations, he is seen with three heads attached to his waistband. And Payman will possess the most vulnerable, okay, most vulnerable of hosts, but it must be a male host. Okay, so let's talk about that. This clicking sound that we hear throughout the movie is kind of viewed as like a little like a practical ha-ha, right? Um, it's, it's playful in nature and it, we hear it before something is 
going to happen, that's not good. So not a lot of instruments here, but I don't know that that would have fit with the filmography. Uh, I don't know that it would have fit with the movie or the theme. So using a sound is a little bit is a little bit better of a storytelling device here. And in terms of vulnerability, who is more vulnerable, right, in the world than someone who is maybe not maybe responsible for the death of their sister and it was an accident or whose mom blames you for the death of her daughter um and you just lost your grandmother and like everything is bad everything is scary nothing good is happening to you or your family it is often you know said in like whether or not you like or believe these shows is, is different. But it's often said, like, in a Ghost Adventures type show or something, that, like, a lot of these people that are, are are affected or impacted with these demonic possessions are suffering a great deal of grief or loss or they're physically not strong. They are not well... They're not healthy. They're not well... They can't, you know, they, they don't have the capacity to be strong both emotionally and physically. And so, like, vulnerability is is what a demon preys on, right? And so that's seems kind of why we have this family dynamic here and why maybe this family was chosen. But the other thing I want to point out is that it has to be a male host. So that's why, okay... When, what's why when Grandma Lee was so obsessed with Charlie, it was because the plan all along was to make Peter the host. And at the end of the movie, when Peter is crowned the king, Joan makes the declaration we have given you a healthy male host that we have now given you the body that you have, you know, have coveted and requested and, and, and required really for us to make this, this happen. And so that's why Charlie wasn't going to work for forever, but she did for a little while. When we're talking about little hints to payment throughout the film, his sigil is seen like literally everywhere. And if you haven't ever seen it, you should look it up. It is pretty. Um, Annie and Grandma Lee both wear a necklace with the sigil on it. Um, it there's two places on the wall in Joan's apartment where the sigil is seen. It is uh, very lightly etched on the telephone pole where Charlie is later decapitated. It is seen on the wall in the attic after Grandma Lee's body is, is uh, dug up and placed there. Like, it's everywhere. And in terms of, I know I said a little bit about necromancy earlier, there's actually quite a lot of it in this movie and like I'm not a practitioner of said magic so I don't want to like overstep 
into somebody else's religious practices, frankly. Um, but I have a great deal of respect for it. But what I want to say is, uh, is just a few things here. And, um, on the walls in the movie, like when you're, when we're in the home, the family home, they have beautiful wallpaper. But if you've ever looked at the wallpaper, you'll see that there are words written into the wallpaper. So one of the first words that we see written into the wallpaper is Zazas. Zazas is part of a mantra that was actually used by Aleister Crowley to summon a demon. Another one is Santony, which is a magical command uh, used to bring the dead to the living world. And one of the other ones is Liftoch Pandemonium, which is used in a few different spells and practices of necromancy, but it is included in the right to invoke a demon. And where we see Joan is casting the spell to rid Peter of his uh, human body, but Peter's actual spirit. She's saying, Santony, Dagony, a paragon. And that is what is recited after you summon a spirit to the living world. And it sends the spirit back from the living world. So was basically just preparing Peter's body to be a host and no longer hold the spirit of Peter anymore. And Annie, whenever she is reading on payment in the book of spiritualism, she finds in that depiction of him... She finds that he is carrying three heads attached to his waistband. So, three heads. Okay. The first one being Grandma Lee. They take her head. They take her shit right off. She gets, you know, she she dies. They have the open casket. And then they, they dig up her body and they take her head. Okay, cool. That's one. Number two, Charlie. Charlie didn't even get the, the luxury of, or the privilege of dying first. So that kind of sucks. And, you know, she got her head cut off. And then the third person was uh, Annie, who cut her own head off. So, like, you know, lots of sacrificing here of heads. And those three heads would symbolize three heads that Payman carries on his waistband. Um, Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is just riddled with with um pretty pretty accurate stuff uh, i would say and i think it's done relatively respectfully as respectful as you can be when you're kind of dealing with this realm of of topic and what i like the most is the use of the triangles and the triangles are literally everywhere Um, I know some people say triangle, anything in threes, you're mocking the Trinity and that very well could be true, but the triangle really represents the seal of Solomon, which is where we get King Payman and the other, you know, 71, 71 spirits of Solomon. Uh, 
And the triangles, when you take them, uh, when you take multiple, excuse me, and put them together is where we get the pentagram. It's not actually like a drawn as a star. It's actually a series of triangles. So there are lots of fun little things in this movie. And using grief as a storytelling device really makes this much more... I don't want to say, like, believable, but maybe just impactful because... I think we can all relate in a little way of, of just being like so desperate to talk to someone, so desperate to do something. If my kid died, I, you would move, what, heaven and earth to talk to them again? Well, guess what? So did Annie. She wanted to talk to her daughter so bad. She was willing to do anything to talk to her again. And look what happened. She was so desperate, you know, going off of her emotions trying everything to bring her daughter back and this is what happened and it makes it even more interesting whenever you bring mental illness into it she was talking when she went to her first grief session about how you know her brother was schizophrenic and her dad starved himself to death and they have all these mental illness afflictions when really did they have all these things? Were they really mental illness? Or did Grandma Lee have some stuff up her sleeve about how she was going to make this happen? And she was going to do anything to make it happen. And she was willing to put her own family on the line to make it happen. And the reason that no other male host worked before is maybe because of these things. Maybe... They couldn't handle it. I mean, from what Annie says about her brother, she's saying, like, he killed himself and he blamed our mom for putting the spirit, the voices inside of his head. Well, that may be true. Maybe he did have voices inside of his head. Maybe they were from mom. But maybe also he just wasn't a fit host. So there's a lot of things at play here. And I think it really takes this movie and, and really puts it on a whole nother level. I know a lot of people that watched it at first were like, who, what are you talking about? Like, there's no, there's no religious component. There's no like demonic component to this movie. There 100% is. And on a first watch, I can see why you would maybe not feel that way. But if you did, and, and if you haven't seen this movie more than once, I suggest you watch it again. It really is so phenomenal. And what an incredible release uh from Ari Aster so thank you so much I will wrap it up there because we like to keep things at about an hour so thank you so much for listening I greatly appreciate you sitting here with another episode with me if you have any other suggestions for me please feel free to email me at finalgirlon6 that's the number six at gmail.com or you can message me on instagram at finalgirlon6 also the number six we're here every other week on thursdays i think i'm going to maybe keep it going with the ari aster movie maybe i'll do midsommar next week uh excuse me next episode so we can get that one out of the way and it's also a folk horror which i haven't done actually on this this show yet um, and Ari Aster really is the master of grief as a storytelling device. So maybe we'll give that a go together. Um, but thank you so much for listening. 
I am Sixth Avenue's very own final girl, and I can't wait to talk to you again in two weeks. Bye.